0: by which have been given to us many great and exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them you may, may become partakers of the divine nature, which having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Let us bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word, that we pray that we might not take it lightly, that we not, might not uh, take advantage in a wrong way of the fact that, that we have your word. In many cases, we have numerous translations. And often in life, when we have an abundance of something, we forget the significance of having having it at all. And so, Father, we need to be reminded of the significance of your word and that we need to internalize your word, that we need to hide it in our heart. Because as you have said in numerous places in the scripture, it is through your word that we are mature, that we come to grow spiritually, that we are able to face and handle the challenges, the heartaches, the difficulties, as well as properly handle the good times so that you might be glorified in our lives. We pray today as we examine the scripture that God the Holy Spirit would use this to further our maturation process. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing to study the spiritual skills, spiritual skills, and we are talking about doctrinal orientation, which I began to look at last week. It begins with learning to value God's Word. Today, we're going to look at two passages in the Psalms that talk about delighting in God's Word, that often... People think that it's sort of drudgery to have to go to church or to go to Sunday school or, or they, they really don't get very excited about having to read through the Bible. Usually I find it somebody who still thinks they need to read it in the King James Version. They can't understand anything that's written there. Uh, but we need to acquire this, this uh, quality that we desire God's word, that we delight in it, that that this is something that we look forward to because it is God's word that refreshes our souls, and it is God's word that gives us the uh, mental tools to be able to face life, to handle all of the circumstances in in life. So today we're going to look through a number of passages which I've indicated there in the title. But first, a bit of review. Bible emphasizes its value in the Old Testament, and just because it's in the Old Testament doesn't mean the principle here does not apply to us. These are the kinds of things are all repeated in the New. But in the Torah, in the Law, the instruction of God through Moses to His people, He said, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul." And with all your strength. And these words, talking about what he is saying in this book of Deuteronomy, but applies to all of Scripture, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And that means that it should be internalized, assimilated, made a natural part of your thinking. Psalm 119:11 echoes that where Paul says your word I mean where David says your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee that that's why we're looking at these spiritual skills because in our passage as we've gone through Ephesians we're given a series of commands starting in Ephesians 4:25 And many of these have to do with dealing with sinful behavior in our lives and how we are supposed to think, how we're supposed to communicate with others, and how we are supposed to live. And often we struggle with these things because of our sin nature. And what we're learning here is that God has given us these skills, these tools, these ten spiritual skills I'm going through are found and echoed throughout Scripture, it's these ten spiritual skills are just uh, a summary. They are what the, a summary of what the Bible teaches. That's what we looked at last time when we uh, looked at the meaning of the word doctrine, because we're talking about doctrinal orientation. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the importance of prioritizing Scripture delighting in god's word second we're going to see the results of delighting in god's word in psalm 1 which we read earlier third we're going to see the evidence of delighting god's word in psalm 119 uh, 9 through 13 and then we are going to look at the means for oh didn't mean to do that the means for spiritual growth in John seventeen seventeen, also echoed in passages like First Peter two two, uh, and the transformation process of spiritual growth is indicated in Romans twelve two. So, by way of review, we are looking at the spiritual skills under the metaphor that is used in the Old Testament of a fortress. Many, many times in Scripture, God is referred to by all of these various terms. He is a shield. He is a fortress. He is our high tower. Uh, He is a rock. All of these indicate He protects us, but He protects us not apart from His Word, but through His Word. Uh, There are times He protects us as He sovereignly uh, rules over circumstances in life, but in terms of protecting our souls. So that we have stability, so that we are not double minded, as James says in James one five so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as we've studied in Ephesians four eleven and twelve. Uh, this comes only from internalizing uh, the Word of God, so this metaphor we've looked at that whenever we start walking according or living according to our sin nature. The way to re-enter the fortress is through using 1 John 1, 9, and we uh, confess sin. Automatically, we are placed back in right relationship with God. We are to be walking by the Holy Spirit who fills us with His Word. And then we looked at the faith rest drill, that important principle of Learning the Word so that we can and memorizing the Word so that we can recall those scriptures to mind in time of need, and God the Holy Spirit reminds us of these things. sometimes you may not remember the whole verse, but you remember part of it. You may remember the first part of first peter five seven cast your cares upon him, and so you go to him with your with your cares and your concerns, and you take those before him in prayer. We had the faith rest drill, and then uh, grace orientation, learning to think according to God's principles of grace and not man's principles of tit-for-tat. We are focusing on uh, living our lives so that we think the way Jesus Christ thought. And that's how we come to understand these things. You don't just autonomously define what these these ideas are. You define them by the Word of God. And the trouble you have with, with liberal theology is that people have their idea of what Jesus is like, Jesus meek and mild, and so they have this concept of what Jesus' love is, which is really permissiveness, and none of which is biblical, And then when they read the Bible, they read these uh, non-biblical ideas that they've generated in their own soul, which is just another form of idolatry, and they read that into the Scripture. And we have to learn how to read the Scripture so that when we are reading it, we let the Bible define its terms and we don't read into it the definitions of, of human viewpoint. And so that leads us, if we're going to be oriented to grace, we also need to be oriented to God's Word. And we call that doctrinal orientation. So I looked at this last time and I said, well, what do we mean by doctrine? And uh, what is knowing doctrine the same as knowing God? And as I went through this, I defined doctrine based on the words of Scripture that it basically means teaching. And Acts 2.42 talking about those who were first saved on the day of Pentecost, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So doctrine is a very good word and a very important word, but doctrine refers to the teaching that comes from the Scripture. And last time I made the point that doctrine is not the same as the Scripture, What is inspired by God is not doctrine. I saw people looking shocked. It's the Word of God that's inspired. God breathed out the words of Scripture. And from the words of Scripture, we discern the ideas of Scripture. And for teaching, we synthesize those ideas and present those in ways so that we can easily assimilate them. But the Word of God is not systematic theology. If God had wanted us to uh, just think in terms of systematic theology, He would have given us a systematic theology. But God gave us the Scriptures. If it was a systematic theology, we would read it through once or twice or maybe a couple of times more, and we'd say, I've got all the answers, I'm done. But he gave us the scripture in terms of examples of people's lives, both the good and the bad, and he gives it in poetry. He gives it in historical narrative. He gives it in um, didactic literature, that is instruction, which is what we have in the epistles. He gives it through prophetic revelation that utilizes certain metaphors and symbols that forces us to constantly go back and read it and dig and try to understand figures of speech and try to understand how these commands relate to each other so that we must constantly be engaged with what God has said to us that we can properly understand it and interpret it. For pastors, we are told that we are to proclaim the word. I, like, I think the saying here, proclaim the message, it's not just um, the gospel, some people might think, it is the message of Scripture. And we are to proclaim what is revealed in Scripture, the Word of God itself, in season and out of season. Now, this is part of what becomes teaching, convincing people of the truth of what is said in the Scripture, rebuking, showing that certain behaviors that we may think are acceptable are not acceptable. And the Word of God does the rebuking, not the individual pastor uh, exhorting, that is, challenging us, as the Scripture does, to be transformed, to change, to stop doing things that do not conform to the character of God, and doing things that do conform. And that doesn't happen overnight. A lot of people think it's some sort of one-shot decision, let's walk the aisle, uh, yield to Christ, and that get, gets us up over the big thing, and then after that we can almost pursue and for some people we can pursue perfect perfection that's not biblical it's a day-to-day moment-by-moment struggle that's what spiritual warfare is some people get the idea and it's become too pervasive in our culture that spiritual warfare is something to do with fighting spirits and ultimately in one sense that is true but we have three enemies in the christian life the first is our own sin nature Uh, for those of you old enough to remember the old uh, cartoon strip Pogo one time he said we have met the enemy and he is us that's probably been quoted almost as much as scripture in many pulpits we have an enemy within that is our sin nature and that is where the battle is the spiritual warfare takes place between your ears not outside of you so we have our sin nature second we have the world system this is all the different systems of thought philosophies religions opinions that are not derived from the word of god that's a real important distinction it's not just consistent with the Word of God it needs to be derived from the Word of God. What makes something biblical is it comes from the Bible, and you can trace it to the Bible, not just something that you think well it's it's consistent now there may be some things where that's valid, but primarily, we want to look for that which is derived from what god uh, from what God has said and so this is this is teaching this is the importance of, of of doctrine in that sense the instruction from god's word by the way we're going to see the word law used several times in both psalm 1 and psalm 119 and too often when we read the word law we think in terms of the law of Moses or we think in terms of the Mosaic, uh, uh, or we think in terms of other concepts of law, the legalism of the Pharisees, but the word law translates a word Torah. Torah has a range of meanings. One of its significant meanings, and I think it should be translated this a lot more than it is, it is instruction. The Torah of God is not to be limited to just thinking about the moral law of God in the Mosaic law, but the instruction of Scripture. And in that sense, Torah relates to the word doctrine. As, as an Old Testament Hebrew concept, it's the instruction of God's Word. So, we, we as pastors and as individuals, we are to be convinced of the truth of God's word, rebuked, exhort with all patience. I remember when Bob Sahlstrom, who was the director of alumni, preached to my. And Bob didn't know me very well, but he knew men and he knew pastors. He preached my ordination sermon, and he emphasized this with patience for all, that that is important. Because people grow slowly and teaching Titus one nine we're to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught. This is talking about a qualification for a pastor, but it's true for every believer. Someone once wrote the artic- wrote an article in Bibsack Dallas Seminary's Theological Journal, and it said and the title was, "Why are the qualifications for pastors and deacons so low?" because the qualifications that are there are for every believer but there are a lot of other things that are said and addressed to Christians as well that are not necessarily part of the qualifications for pastors and elders so we all ha- there are God has a high standard for all of us and we are even though this is addressed to elders it really applies to everyone to hold fast the faithful word as we have been taught that we may be able, by sound doctrine—now this applies to a communicator, to a pastor—by be able, by sound teaching, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Ephesians 4.11, I mentioned earlier that we, have, we are taught so that we can uh, avoid being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine in Ephesians 4.14. We do this because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for doctrine, profitable for teaching, for reproof. If you come to church and you're not willing to be told from the Scripture that you're wrong, I mean not face-to-face, but from the pulpit, then you're in the wrong place because we come here to learn how we're wrong so that we can be corrected by the Scripture uh, so that we can then grow and mature as believers. We need to be equipped. That's verse 17. The Scriptures are what equips us for every good work. So, and I talked about the way doctrine is used in the military, that it refers to tactics, techniques, and procedures. It refers to the more abstract ideas of Scripture and works itself all the way through to the final way in which the Scripture is applied. And it is stressed by our Lord that we grow by every word that comes from God. God. And it doesn't say every idea, doesn't say every doctrine, it doesn't say every theology. We are to know the Word of God. This has been eternal in the mind of God. There never was a time when this wasn't in his thinking. So we are not to live by bread alone. So last week I summarized, we are to align our thinking to the reality of God's Word. God words tell, God's Word tells us what reality is. Human viewpoint is a fantasy. Human viewpoint is man making up on his own the nature of reality. That, that's basically the definition of a psychotic A neurotic, it has been said, is someone who builds castles in the air. In other words, he has a lot of fantasies. A psychotic is someone who moves into the castle, that is, who lives as if those fantasies are real. According to that definition, most everybody that's not a Christian and growing in the scriptures is a psychotic. Of course, the third part of it is then they pay rent to the landlord who's the psychotherapist, but... So it's the teaching of God's Word must become a way of life. We submit to the teaching of God's Word, and we should do so daily in one form or another. Uh, The teaching of God's Word, third, included the entire realm of biblical teaching, from the abstract to the intensely practical, and that God's Word teaches us how to think, how to react, how to problem-solve in terms of difficulties in life. How do we make decisions? how to prioritize, how to relate to the world, the systems, the people, and the circumstances of life. And then I closed with 2 Peter 3.18, we grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we grow and mature. So this morning I want to talk about the importance of the word again and what it what is produced by delighting in God's Word. And so we're going to start in Matthew 7. We're going to look at Matthew seven twenty four down to 29, where our Lord gives an analogy on the importance of how we construct our lives. This was the inspiration for the chorus of the hymn that we sang this morning, which states, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground. What's the other ground? Pagan thought, human philosophy, human opinions, uh, post-modernism, Marxism, cultural Marxism, uh, things like critical race theory. All other ground is sinking sand. You will not survive. You're caught in quicksand if you are building your life on these worldly philosophies, all other ground is sinking sand. And the first verse starts stating what it, our ideal should be. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So in this, in this analogy... Jesus is comparing two types of people. He's talking about that which each person is building their life on. What is the foundation of your thinking? Uh, Are you continuing to build on that foundation? So we have these two types of people. The first is the wise person, and the second is the foolish Notice the Bible sets things up in black and white. It is a binary reality. You are either with God or you are against God. You are either basing your life on the word of God, which is eternal and unshakable, or you are building it on your own opinions, which is going to stand in the long run. So Jesus begins by saying there. For whoever hears these sayings of mine. Now, by application, that's talking about what he had just said in the Sermon on the Mount. But by implication, this relates to all Scripture, because all Scripture is breathed out by God. So, whoever hears these sayings, that is the the totality of God's revelation and does them. That means applies them to the way they think, the way they talk, the way they live. Jesus says, I will liken him, or I will compare him. So this is a an extended simile. I will compare him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Now, many of us understand the significance of having a solid foundation like rock when you live in the kind of swampy, marshy, coastal plain of southeast Texas, that if you don't have something solid there, then when the hurricanes come, uh, you can be flooded, You can uh, even the ground underneath your house can become loose, and you start seeing shifting. I've been in some houses uh, where even though they were built on a foundation, it wasn't good enough, and I've seen people that had cracks in their sheetrock that were an inch wide. They haven't built on a solid enough foundation. And this is what Jesus says. So if you build on a solid rock, something that is substantive, then when the problems of life come, this is represented by storms. So you have the storms of life. The rain descends, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And he says, And it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. Pretty simple. If you want your life to be stable, and if you want your mentality, your emotions to be stable, then what you need to do is have the foundation of your thinking on the solid rock of A, Jesus Christ, the living word, and B, the written word of God. That's the foundation. In contrast, he talks about the foolish person. This is so Old Testament. This is wisdom literature. This is what you see in Proverbs, the contrast between the wise and the foolish. And you go to the the two Psalms that we're going to talk about are wisdom Psalms in, in one sense. They are comparing the wise and the foolish. So Jesus says, in contrast to the person who builds on a solid rock, everyone who hears these sayings of mine, that is, everyone who hears uh, the word of God, do, and does not do them, does not apply them, does not take them to heart and transform their thinking, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the problems hit. The floods and storms of life. The rain descended, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on the house, and it fell. And great was its fall. That's the that's the analogy. And when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. See, the word of God has authority. It is inherent in the word of God. And you have two responses. You either accept it as the word of God, or you try to rationalize it and justify partial obedience or disobedience, one or the other. But it makes a difference what you're oriented to. Proverbs 129, actually this begins a little earlier in the chapter, but I didn't want to go through the whole... Uh, The whole chapter, it starts in verse 20. And it describes how the wise man builds his life. And it must be done before the crisis occurs. We have a saying that you don't close the barn door after the cow gets out. Because it's too late. Cow's gone. And that's how many people are in life. It's amazing when certain crises have occurred it nationally, whether it can be a hurricane that has hit or whether it can be a national crisis like 9-11, but all of a sudden you'll see more people in church. Too late. You've got to get it before the crisis. You've got to build that uh, defensive uh, fortress before it goes. And the reason I say it's too late is because of the last part of this. In Proverbs 129, uh Solomon is writing uh, about those who the fools. They hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord earlier in the chapter is said to be uh the path of wisdom. That we the start of wisdom The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you are not respecting the Lord, fearing the Lord, putting what he says above everything else, then the result is that when the storms of life come, whether they affect you in terms of your mentality, your emotions, your physical things... How you respond is going to be determined by how you've prepared yourself spiritually. And if you haven't prepared, when you get there, it's too late. That's what he says. Uh, These are the ones who hated knowledge. They didn't, didn't choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel. See, this is personification of wisdom. Wisdom is talking here. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, there's a conclusion you have despised god if you haven't made his word your priority if god elevates his word above his name then don't you think it ought to be important to you then this is what god says as personified as wisdom he says too late therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way you're going to reap the consequences of those bad decisions the failure to inculcate wisdom Uh, Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. That's the King James, this new King James. I like that because what what they understood was this is the neurotic who has built his castles in the air and he's moved in. They're living according to their own plans and their own counsels. That's the literal meaning of the word, but the implication is they're living in a fantasy world. And God's going to say, and now that fantasy castle is going to fall down around your ears. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me, no matter what the external circumstances, will dwell safely and be secure. They'll have stability without fear of evil. And Jeremiah 724 uses this same uh, word for that's translated "fancies here, and says, "Yet they talking about the fool, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels, and that would be the word for fancies the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts, And they went backward and not forward. Psalm 81.12 uses that same idea and says, So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart. That's what God says. I will give them over. You really want to do that way? You really want to find out what it's going to be like not to live on the basis of my word, not to spend time in my word, not to learn the truth? says, You do that, then I will give you over to your own stubborn heart to walk in your own fantasies. Just look around. That's where we are in our culture. So let's go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the first psalm and is chosen to be the introductory message to the whole of the psalms as they were organized. It doesn't mean it was the first one written it was organized much later because these psalms are written over a long period of time. Some are written very early, some are written like the Psalm of Moses in Psalm 90 at the time of the Exodus, some are written uh, by David, some are written after David, some are even written after the Jews returned from Babylon. So it's written over a long period of time, and it's not organized in its final form until after that return from Babylon. I believe that God the Holy Spirit is involved in all of that, that process. So the first book, uh, the first psalm, introduces us to some of the key themes that will be found in the psalms, and many scholars who have really studied this in depth suggest that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 have an intricate connection, but we're not going to go that far talks about blessedness at the very beginning blessed is the man who and this concept of blessed some have said this has the idea of of happiness it is more than happiness in fact happiness too often conveys sort of an ephemeral emotion that we 're just ebullient because of circumstances, or because we wake up one day and we don 't we 're not tired, and we just sort of feel upbeat just because of the way our body 's working that day, you know what I mean, and the next day you wake up and for no apparent reason you 're just sluggish and and everything seems to have a gray tinge to it, and you wake up and you 're in a bad mood, and you really need to spend the day in bed, but you won 't do it. Um, This word blessedness has to do with an internal peace, tranquility, and stability. It is someone who is satisfied with life. He's fulfilled. He is happy no matter what happens. He is content with that which is good or that which isn't because his stability doesn't rest on external circumstances. It's not dependent upon people. It's not dependent on how they look when they look in the mirror. It is dependent upon what God's Word says. So we could translate it, stable is the man, or tranquil, or content. All of those ideas are what it means when it says, blessed is this man. And then what happens is rather than describing the positive aspects first, he describes the negative aspects. He doesn't do three things. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. New King James says sinners, but the word there means wicked. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. So, as we look at this, the word wicked uh, might convey the idea that they do wicked things, Um, but not all the time. They can be kind at times, they can be nice at times, but they are uh, oriented to their sin nature. And so, we listen to those who do not have a divine viewpoint framework for counsel. Their advice is their opinion. Their advice may uh, sound good, maybe what you want to hear, but that doesn't mean it comes from God. So they don't walk, that is, they don't live their life on the basis of the human viewpoint uh, opinions of the world. And then we see this progression from walking to standing to sitting. If he went to a fourth one, he would say, squatting down on the ground and planting your roots in something. So it is a very dramatic way of saying that they are not living their life on the basis of these three things. The, the wicked uh, nor stands in the path of sinners. These are those who have rebelled against God. They are not living in light of God's standards. Uh, the word for sinners is the word uh, essentially for missing the mark. They're off-target. And then the third is sit in the seat of the scornful. These are those who ridicule God, ridicule the Bible, ridicule the principles of the Scripture. And uh, so on the negative side, you don't live your life according to the basics of what's popular in the world around you and the thinking of the world around you. But instead, so there's a contrast. If you're going to live the Christian life, you cannot base it on what, on the popularity of what other people do or what they think. The contrast is your delight is in the instruction of the Lord. You delight in being taught the Word of God. You delight in reading the word of God. You delight in thinking about it. That's the next stanza. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, that doesn't mean that you're meditating on the word every second of every minute of every hour of every day. Day and night is a figure of speech for just this is something that characterizes your life all the time that you're thinking about God's Word, you're thinking about applying God's Word, you you come to issues at work or issues in your life, you say, well, how does the Word of God say I ought to respond to this? And then third, what's the result? He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So this is a lush green tree that looks very healthy. It brings forth its fruit in its season, not every day, but at the right time. It brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy or healthy, but that that which you do will have eternal significance. So we go to the uh, next part. Wait a minute, I skipped past that. We go to Psalm 119 now. So turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 119. So Psalm 1 describes the person whose thinking is oriented to the Word of God. He delights in it. Psalm 119 is an acrostic. You have different sections or parts to it. Each one is labeled by and starts with the word That begins with the next letter in the alphabet, in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first line of the first word is Asherah, which begins with an Aleph, talking about how blessed, same concept we had in Psalm Psalm 1, whose way is blameless and who walks in the law or lives his life in the instruction of the Lord. So it's echoing a lot of those ideas of Psalm 1. But I want us to skip down to verse 9, verse nine verses 9 through 16, or the second section, Beit, the second letter in the alphabet, okay, Aleph. The, in fact, in Hebrew, they refer to it as the Aleph-Bet. That's where we get our word alphabet. Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew of, uh, alphabet, and Beit, which means house, like Beit-El, Beth-El means house that's the second letter how can a young man keep his way pure how do you deal with sin in your life well i need to understand the right psychology i need to go the right motivational person no by keeping it according to your word you have to know god's word to keep it which means we have to read it daily I don't know about you, but I'll read through the Bible in a year, and then the next year I start reading it again. And say, I don't remember that. I read my. I probably read through my Bible dozens of times, and I still read verse and go, I don't remember that. It's amazing. That's it's why we have to complete do this again and again and again. We have to read God's word to know God's word. and We have to know God's word in order to apply God's word. Verse ten. Says, with my whole heart I have sought you. You know, this isn't a halfway motivation. It's, it's, I'm fully dedicated to the Lord. Whatever, whatever I do and how I plan my life, it needs to reflect the fact that the most important thing in my life is the knowledge and application of the Word of God. With my whole heart I have sought you. And then the prayer, oh Lord, is addressed to the Lord. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. And then he says, your word have I hidden in my heart. I've memorized it. I've internalized it, that I might not sin against you. It's the word that gives us a standard for how to cleanse our way and how to prevent ongoing sin. Then verse 12 says, blessed are you, O Lord. Now, this doesn't mean God receives blessing. It is a euphemism or an idiom for praising God. Uh, So he's saying, praise you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. What's interesting is in Psalm 119, almost every line has a synonym for the word of God. Statutes, judgments, instruction, your word, uh, your way, all of these are synonyms for the word of God verse 13, with my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies, testimonies for your, your word, as much as in all riches. I value God's word more than I value money. That's hard for a lot of people. Verse 15, he says, I will meditate, I will think, I will contemplate, I will concentrate on, I will focus on your precepts. Some of the words that are translated meditate have the idea of moaning. And that—that's the word that's used in Psalm one, and it's the idea that you're—you're sort of memorizing Scripture and you're repeating these words of Scripture under your breath as you go throughout the day, reminding yourself of God's Word. And so you're just—you're just whispering it to yourself or uttering it, and somebody may think you're crazy and talking to yourself, but just tell them you have a hidden Bluetooth earphone. I will delight myself in your statutes. Delight That includes enjoyment, anticipation, favoring your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now let's step, jump into the New Testament in John 17. I frequently quote John 17, 17, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. But to understand that, we have to start back in verse 15. He is talking about the relationship of the believer, the disciples, to the world. Now, the world here isn't just the physical globe. It refers to the thinking of the people who inhabit the world. And we're not to, Romans twelve two is where we'll end, we're not to be conformed to that world system. In other words, this has as much to do with culture as anything. There is a human culture. There is the God's culture. God's culture is what's described in the Word. But everyone lives in subcultures and sub-subcultures and cultures that have values and teach us how to how, what we should desire in life, what our goals should be in life, what our values of good and bad should be. We live in a world that says, well, there's no absolutes. And you have to conform to that because, if really, if you don't agree with their idea that there are no absolutes and you point out that that is a logical contradiction because you can't say it's absolutely true that you should have no absolutes and you say well you're irrational then you know they're going to cancel you and they're going to say you're a racist You go, what does that have to do with racism well you have to understand the way they think anything that doesn't agree with them is by definition racist They'll get there somehow. So we're not to be conformed to that. So, so God says, I mean, Jesus says, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, because Satan is the one who is the real architect of worldly thinking. It's Satan's viewpoint as much as its human viewpoint or, or, or a worldly viewpoint. And then, Jesus prayed, they are not of the world, because we are now in Christ. We're not of the world. We are set apart. We are distinct. Now, that's an important idea to hold on to, because it helps us understand verse 17. We're not of the world. We're separate. We're distinct, just as I am not of the world. And then he uses the word sanctify. This word sanctify is the Greek word hagiadzo, and it's based on the Old Testament word kadash, and it has the idea of being set apart to the service of God. So that's what he's talking about. We're not of the world. We we are separate from the world from the instant we're saved, and so therefore we're not to live according to the world, because if you do, we're of no use to God. We are to be set apart. So he says, they, that is, believers, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctifies one of those biblical theological words people have trouble with, and it means to be set apart to the service of God. Some people think it means being uh, holy or morally pure. doesn't mean that, that at all. Forms of these words were used to describe the temple prostitutes In the ancient world, they're not morally pure, but they are set apart to the service of their God. That's the idea. So we are to be set apart to the service of God. That's what Jesus is praying. Set them apart for your service. And to be of service to God, we have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the key here. How are we set apart for the service of God? By means of your truth. And so when we look at John 17:18, what we read, the, the, well, here at the end of 17, rather, set them apart for your service by means of your truth. Your word is truth. It's the word of God that enables us to be separated to God. This is exactly what Romans 12, 1 and 2 tell us. Here in these two verses... Paul writes a brilliant summary of what the Christian life is all about and what almost every pulpit message is about. He says, I exhort you or I beseech you in the King James, I exhort you or challenge you. This is the challenge that God gives to each of us. I challenge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies are on, on the basis of God's grace. That you present your bodies, that is your whole life, physical and spiritual. Present yourself a living sacrifice, holy. See, that's that same word. It's based on hagias, hagias, hagiazo. It means to be set apart. So he says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice set apart, set apart from the world, acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. We are to serve God. To serve God, we are not to live according to the world, but according to God's word. And then in verse 12, he says, and do not be pressured to conform to the world. That is, do not be pressured to conform with the thinking, the talking, and the actions of those in the pagan way of life around you. You know, if you go off to college, your kids go off to college, the problem is with peer pressure, they're going to start living, thinking, and acting like all of the pagans who have rejected God in a heartbeat. That's why it's so important as parents to start training them from the time that they are first born. Just reading the Bible to them day in and day out will have value. And telling them the, about Jesus, telling them all, teaching them at a, at a very basic level about things like, like we teach them. You have responsibility. You have a yes button and a no button. And if you keep pressing the no button, you're going to get a spanking. And if you get press the yes button, then you might get a reward. And so there we teach behavior. But be transformed by the renovation of your thinking. That you can demonstrate your life becomes evidence. You may demonstrate that God's will is good and acceptable and complete. Our life becomes a testimony to the grace of God. So this is how we are. To, why we are to delight in the Word, because it transforms us. So when we delight in God's Word, the long-term result is it builds stability. It builds a sense of contentment and confidence. And the result of it is that it bears fruit in its season. In other words, it produces spiritual growth and maturation. We have to to develop that love and that attraction to the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God daily. We need to hear it. We need to be in Bible class. Uh, We need to be online. We need to saturate our souls with the Word of God. And anything less is not going to produce that abundant life that Jesus has provided for us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity again to think about the role your Word should have in our life and that we need to hide it in our hearts, that we need to commit it to memory. We need to not only memorize it, but, but internalize it, assimilate it. Uh, as we come to understand what it means that we live according to your word. But we know we're not perfect. We all sin and we all fail, and we're going to sin and fail many, many times in the process of our lives. So we thank you for your grace that when we fail, we can have forgiveness of those sins and cleansed from all other sins. But we continue to grow because we know that, that this is what will give us stability and what builds our life on a rock foundation, that we may stand in the time of testing, in the time of storms. And, Father, it's too late when those storms come to go back and try to do it over. We pray that you would challenge each of us, that we may set the bar of it, that we're shooting for a little higher, that we may learn to be a little more consistent in our Bible reading, that we may be more consistent in memorizing Scripture, and that we may be more consistent in the application of your word. And that we pray that we may grow a little more in our maturity in our spiritual life. So, Father, we pray these things, and we pray for anyone who may be listening who has never trusted Christ as Savior, always wondered, well, what happens when I die? Scripture says that Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty in full. There's nothing left for us to do, nothing left that we can do. We trust in him. We rely upon what he did for us on the cross, believing that he died for our sins, he paid the penalty in full, and that by trusting in him, we have everlasting life. And we pray that those who've never done that would understand this and take that step. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.